0: Amen. Great passage. I'm looking forward to uh, sharing together this morning. Uh, before we dig into this, I uh, felt it would be important to uh, say a few words about COVID. Uh, I'm sure you've not, you don't know what that is. You've not heard about that. So I just want to update you a little bit. Uh, Perhaps you've noticed the masks being worn on the platform by the musicians and speakers, which is uh, a little different than what we've been doing. There are at least two reasons for that as the elders have been monitoring the situation. Number one is that numbers in our area and around the country are going up, as you've heard. We're grateful that we've not had any new cases uh, among us in our own fellowship and we want to do our part to get ahead of what the expected surge is through these winter months. Obviously it's not a guarantee, but we want to do our part to protect the public health, both of our fellowship as well as our neighbors. It's well known that one of the most effective ways of transmitting the virus is through what comes out of our mouths as we speak and as we sing, hence the masks. The second reason, in addition to the, uh, the surge and wanting to be responsible, is we want to wear masks to communicate that now is not the time to get lax about taking precautions. We need to continue being careful about our physical distancing, about wearing masks, about hand hygiene, but not out of panic or fear, but out of a sense of prudence and faith in God that he will take care of us. It's really an issue of love. It's loving one another. My my wearing my mask is a statement that I love you enough that I want to prevent myself from giving it to you. So I don't know about you, but I've been feeling the pandemic fatigue, the COVID fatigue, the mask fatigue. I'm really desiring this to be over. And If you're in that boat, I uh, share your pain. But we need to persevere with God's help. Christians of all people, should know what it is to wait we are awaiting people we are waiting as god works out his plans in our lives we are waiting until he returns and now we're waiting to see what he's doing with covid 19. so we do want to thank you all for your efforts and for those of you who have given us your observations have expressed your concerns and as we continue to monitor this we uh, request your prayers for God's wisdom and God's grace among us that we can continue to navigate our way through very uncertain waters in which there's a lot of subjectivity. So anyway, that's the reason for the, the mass that we're seeing and may God help us and give us grace through this continued time and I can't wait till it's over. Let's, I'd like to just pause a moment as we uh, get into God's word and, uh, and pray again. God, I ask that you would indeed give us your strength and your grace to persevere through these difficult times. And now as we come to this time around your word, we ask that you would bless this meal to the nourishment of our souls. Open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you. Open our hearts to receive you. Change our lives to follow you more fully. Jesus, your name is truly a strong and mighty tower. Your name truly is a shelter like no other. So in your name we pray, come and fill our hearts today. Lord, give us strength to live for you and glorify your name. Amen. Amen. If you haven't already, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 to follow along with our uh, study this morning. Uh, Two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 3, where we saw that a lame man was healed, after which Peter and John have an opportunity to tell the people about Jesus' death for their sins and about his resurrection. During that message, Peter gives a call to repent and turn back, repent, change your mind about following your own ways and turn back to the God who made you. Turn back to the God who loves you. Turn back to the God who came to rescue you. And Peter says, if you do so, that times of refreshing will come from the Lord. How many of us need those times of refreshing? Times of refreshing will come from the Lord. You will be saved from the penalty of sin. You will go through this process of being saved from the power of sin, and one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin itself. I don't know if you noticed, though, our story ended in Acts chapter 3 without seeing what the response was to that message. And today, in Acts chapter 4, in these verses, we see the response to that message. And so let's dig into what that response looks like. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, we see the first phase of that response, and I entitled this, The Arrest and the Imprisonment. So this great miracle occurs, this lame man is healed, this man who has been lame from birth is healed, and what is the response? The response is Peter and John, and presumably this lame man are arrested and put in jail. Not exactly the response we would expect. What was their crime? The crime, if you look in verse 2, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And who were the arresting authorities? The arresting authorities were the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. They were, Luke records, greatly annoyed. They were very disturbed that Peter and John were preaching about the resurrection. Luke specifically mentions the Sadducees here. If you know anything about the Sadducees, among other things they believed is they denied the possibility of resurrection. They did not believe that resurrection... Occurred. You can see that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can also see it in Acts 23. So proclaiming Jesus' resurrection was particularly troubling to them because they didn't even believe in a resurrection in the first place. But you need to also note Luke's footnote in verse 4. He says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. After Peter's first sermon, we are told that about 3,000 people had come to the Lord. Here now the number has risen to 5,000, so presumably another 2,000 plus people have believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and have come to the Lord. I believe Luke is making an important point here that opposition does not stop God from accomplishing his purposes. Opposition does not stop God from accomplishing his purposes. So that's the arrest and the imprisonment. The next thing we see in verses five to 12 is the interrogation and the defense. The hearing is the next day. Verse five, it says, on the next day, the rulers and elders gathered together. And you may notice that in verse six, it mentions Annas and Caiaphas, along with John and Alexander and others. You may remember Annas and Caiaphas, who are among those attending. Uh, You remember them as those who presided over Jesus' trial. And orchestrated his crucifixion just a couple of months earlier. This is not something that is out of their mind. This is something that's very much fresh in their mind. Annas and Caiaphas were also those among the group who, after Jesus' resurrection, manufactured the story that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but his disciples had stolen his body from the tomb and had hidden it somewhere. No wonder they were annoyed. They worked very, very hard to get rid of Jesus, including a terrible trial, lies, and murder, and thought they were finally done with him. And now, this, he's back. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. As I was preparing this, I don't know if you know the song, uh, The Cat Came Back. Have you ever heard that? It's an old song. I actually found out it was written in 1898, it was uh, very interesting. Um, Old Mr. Johnson had troubles of his own. He had a yellow cat that wouldn't leave its home. He tried and he tried to give the cat away. He gave it to a man going far away. But the cat came back the very next day. The cat came back. We thought he was a goner, but the cat came back. It just couldn't stay away. And the song goes on to tell he gave it to a woman going up in a balloon. He gave it to a man going out west on a train. Other versions of the song, he put it, gave it to somebody going across the ocean on a boat. And in each time, disaster struck those modes of transportation. But guess what? The cat came back the very next day. Like I say, with these religious leaders, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical because they've been trying to get rid of Jesus. They've been trying their hardest to get rid of him. And he just won't go away. So what is the interrogation? The interrogation, we notice in verse 7, they ask one question. By what power or by what name did you do this? Do what? Did you heal this man? By what power or by what name did you do this? Notice the question is one of power and authority. They were feeling threatened. They were the ones in power. They were the ones who had the authority, and their power and authority was being threatened. They wanted to know By what power, by what authority did you do this? And what is Peter's defense? Very simply, he says it was by the power of and in the name of Jesus Christ. Can you hear the unbelieving tone? Can you hear the incredulous tone in Peter's voice? If you look in verse 8, verse 9, he starts by saying, rulers of the people in Israel, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed? You mean to tell me, let me just get this straight, you arrested us and put us in jail because a lame man was healed? And Peter says, this lame man was healed. The man was standing right there with him as they were going through this trial. So let me get this straight. You arrested us, kept us in jail overnight because this man was healed? And then Peter says in verse 10, you need to know that this man was healed, not by our own power or piety, as he said in chapter 3, we saw last week, but by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was healed by the man that you rejected and crucified. He was healed by the one whom God raised from the dead. And then Peter gives one of the most succinct and profound statements that I think in the entire Bible in verse 12 He says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you've never memorized that verse, I would commend that one to you as one of those that would be important to do. He says, you must be saved. There's an urgency. He didn't say, by believing in Jesus, you can be saved or you might be saved. He said, you must be saved. This is not an option. It's a necessity. This is not like whether to join a country club or not. He said, this is life or death. This is your life now and your eternal destiny. They hang on this decision that you make. And he says you need to be saved. You need to be rescued. Why? Because you are lost. You are ruined. You are unable to find the way. You are separated from God for now and for eternity. Your life is governed by your inward person that is sinful, separated from God and his ways. You need to be saved. You must be saved. And there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else Jesus died and rose to save you from the penalty of your sin, the power of your sin, and the presence of sin. Jesus is the only one who can forgive your guilt, who can relieve your shame, and restore your own brokenness and the brokenness of this world. There is no other name under heaven, no person, no religion, no guru, no religious leader, no government, no political party, no political system, no philosophy, no ideology, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you're an unbeliever sitting here this morning, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, I would encourage you to take time to reflect on who or what you are trusting to rescue from your sin and from the brokenness of this world. And if you're a believer, I would invite you to remember what God has done for you. Where were you before you came to Him? What, is, what has He done? Where would your life be or where might your life be if it wasn't for Him? Because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there was the arrest and the imprisonment, there was the interrogation and the defense. Now we look at the deliberation and the verdict. Starting in verse 13. After Peter's defense, Luke points out that the prosecutors noticed four things. As they were assessing the situation, they heard Peter's defense. They assessed or they noticed four things. Number one, in verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter. And as you read on, what they're seeing is this is something that is out of character for men like them. This astonished them. How could they get this confidence? It's almost like, who do they think they are? We are the religious leaders. We are the people who have been to seminary. We are the people who know the law. We are the people who know the scriptures. Who do they think they are, being so bold? Not only that, the second thing they recognized, they perceived they were uneducated common men. Uneducated common men. No formal training, just ordinary people And so in the minds of these leaders, it was easy to dismiss Peter and John as not worth listening to. It was easy to discredit them, because who were they to be speaking to us? And then the third thing they recognized is that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. If they were looking to discredit them, in their minds, that would be enough right there. We hate Jesus. You're a friend of Jesus. We hate you. And that would be enough to discredit them. So what they were doing is they wanted to discredit Peter and John's message because of their lowly social status and because of their association with Jesus. They hear their defense. They make this assessment. You guys are not worth listening to because of your lowly social status and because of your association with Jesus. But verse 14 starts with what word? But. They had a problem. They had a well-known 40-ish-year-old man who had been crippled from birth, who just the day before was being carried into the temple, who is now standing before them completely healed. They had a problem. Many of you know my mother. She's 91. Hi, Mom. Uh, She gets around fairly well. She uses a cane, uses a walker, uh, doesn't break any speed records, but does get around. That's the closest equivalent I could come to understanding this in my own life. If somebody came and, and said, you know, your mom just won the Boston Marathon. And I, no, there, there's, just, there, there's no way that this could happen. I mean, yesterday she was in a walker in and in a cane, and she just won the Boston Marathon. I mean, that's the kind of drama we're talking about here. These guys had a big problem. They could not discredit this, and as a matter of fact, when you look at it, it says in verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Nothing to say in opposition. They could easily dismiss Peter and John as good-for-nothings, but they could not so easily dismiss the power of a life It had been changed by faith in Jesus Christ. So they have a private conference. They put Peter and John and this lame man out. And what happens now, I believe, is truly remarkable. Truly remarkable. If you look in verse 16, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it a notable sign has occurred, something that is obvious, something that is well-known, something that we cannot deny that this miracle happened. We cannot deny that this man who was lame is now walking. We cannot deny that. So what we're going to do is we are going to bow before the name of Jesus Christ because there is no other power on earth that can do this. Is that what they say? No. They say we're going to tell them to speak no more in Jesus' name. We're going to tell them to speak no more in Jesus' name. Don't miss this. This is the sinful heart at work. An obvious, undeniable miracle has occurred in Jesus' name, and they don't even have an alternate explanation for it like they tried with Jesus' resurrection. At least with his resurrection, they say, well, the disciples stole the body. They don't even have an alternative explanation. They say, we can't even deny this. But rather than believe in Jesus, they ignore the miracle and they choose to ban the mention of Jesus' name in the public square. They were willing to deny the plain facts in front of them and deny Jesus, the only one who could rescue their lives. Have you or someone you know ever said, I would believe in Jesus if only God would and fill in the blank, send me a sign, heal me, allow me to hit the lottery, whatever you want to fill in the blanks, to which I say, no, you wouldn't. We have great capacity to ignore the facts. A miracle will not lead to belief in Jesus if you don't want to believe. And these men had this man standing right in front of them, say, we cannot deny the fact that yesterday he was lame, and today he is healed in the name of Jesus, and we are going to command you to not speak in the name of Jesus. Many years ago, many of you know I'm a medical doctor. Many years ago, I had a patient, an older woman, who, through the course of a routine chest x ray, we discovered a spot on her lung that was very suspicious for lung cancer. It was very small. I gave her the results. I started going through, you know, we want to have you see a specialist, we want to take care of this because it's very early. There's an outstanding chance that this can be completely cured because we've caught it so early. We were fortunate to catch it early. We weren't even looking for it, and we found it, and it's very early. And as I explained that, she said, well, yeah, there's nothing there. There's no problem. I don't want to do anything. And I went back and said, now, this looks like it might be lung cancer. I sort of upped the ante now. I used the C word. Um, And we need to take care of this. And she said, no, I don't want to take care of it. I said, okay. So three or four months later, I repeated the chest x-ray just to see where we were at, and it was bigger. The spot was bigger. And again, the radiologist reported that it was very suspicious for lung cancer. And I told her this again. I said, you know, if we get to this now, there's still, we still have a shot at this that we could uh, cure this. She said, no, I, I don't want to do anything with it. Well, we did that several times, and it was about a year or so later she died of her lung cancer. She denied the plain facts that were in front of her, denied the only opportunity she had for cure, and thus opted to die instead, instead of live. And that's what these leaders are doing. They're denying the plain facts that are right in front of them, and rather than choosing to live by faith in Jesus Christ, they opt to die by separating themselves from him. So, what's their response? We see that in verses 18 to 22. So, they called them back in. They had dismissed them from the council. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, in verse 18. They don't say, Stop healing people. They say, Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Again, this is just remarkable when you think about what's happening. We see this today in our own culture. People can say publicly, in God we trust. We can say publicly, God bless America, God bless the U.S. of A. But what if we just changed that a little bit and said, in Jesus we trust. May Jesus bless America. I think that would change the character greatly. I'll tolerate you speaking of God, but don't speak to me of Jesus. Many years ago, uh, I had the privilege of working with a colleague, an infectious disease specialist whom I highly respected and admired. Not only was she a tremendously great clinician, very smart, very talented, but she was a great person. She just was a wonderful person. She was uh, not that old and sadly developed breast cancer that had became metastatic. I had the opportunity to visit her in the hospital and found when I went to see her that she was very discouraged about her condition and the outlook because the cancer had spread. And through the course of our discussions, I was able to point her to the scriptures. I was able to read some passages that could be of encouragement to her and her perspective about where God is in the midst of her suffering and the eternal life that waited I don't know if she became a believer through our discussions or she was already a believer whose faith was strengthened by our discussions, but in any event, after our discussions, she had found great hope and peace and understanding God's grace in her life and, and what He had promised for her, and she was able to be at peace. Unbeknownst to me, she had spoken to someone before she died asking that I offer the prayer at her funeral. This funeral was going to be attended by our medical colleagues who we all knew, and most of them were not believers. What a great opportunity this was. And I carefully wrote out the prayer, carefully thought it out, and I don't remember any of the content of the 150 or 200 words or whatever it was of the prayer, but I do remember there was one word in that prayer that caused a bit of an uproar, and that was, can you guess, jesus because i chose intentionally to end my prayer because that's how i was praying and i'm praying and i didn't say we were praying i said i am praying in jesus name and that created a bit of an uproar if I, i could have said i pray in god's name i pray in your name i pray in his name i probably could have even said i pray in the name of the god of abraham isaac and jacob i think i could have gotten away with any of that but i said in jesus name and that created some uproar We're no different than these leaders who say, do not speak at all in the name of Jesus. Do not speak at all in the name of Jesus. Well, Peter and John reply to this. They place their decision right where it belongs. Basically, starting in verse 19, Peter and John answered them, you can decide for yourselves if it's right to listen to you or listen to God. But Peter says, we cannot listen to you. And it's very interesting, the language here. He doesn't say we won't listen to you. He says we can't listen to you. It's not possible for us to be silent. We have seen too much to be silent. We have seen Jesus' sinless life. We saw his death on the cross. We saw his resurrection from the dead. We have seen lives changed because of faith in him. We cannot listen to you to no longer speak in Jesus' name. It's not possible for us to be silent. And so in verses 21 and 22, we see that the leaders threaten them. They have no cause to punish them because the people are praising God because of this man who was healed. They cannot punish him because they have a clear miracle in front of them that they cannot dispute. So this event has challenged their authority, so they answer with a power play. They threaten them and let them go. I think this is a remarkable passage when you think of what Jesus has done in the life of this man and what these leaders chose to do in denying the facts that were right before them to turn from Jesus Christ. That's the nature of the sinful heart. A miracle could happen to us, in front of us, that we would not believe if we were so disposed. To close out our time, I'd like to make some further observations. There are lots of ways that we could, I've tried to bring some application to this as we've gone along, but there are lots of ways we could bring further application, but I'm going to be avert and wade right into the mess this morning. I'm gonna take the risk. They say there are two things you shouldn't talk about in polite company, religion and politics. Well, I've already violated the first one for the last however many minutes. So I may as well add the other one on too. I'm gonna, we're gonna talk about politics. As I was reflecting on this passage, I thought it was very interesting that God's timing on this passage. We are in the midst of an election season. And election seasons in general tend to be very emotional very polarizing, and even divisive. And this one is no exception. I don't know if you saw the, f- the front page headline of the Philadelphia Inquirer this morning. Did anybody see it? Anxiety builds as clock ticks. Anxiety builds as clock ticks. This is the first election that I can remember since I've been aware of it, that where people have had legitimate concerns about how people are gonna respond to this. Is there going to be violence? Is there going to be unrest? Is there going to be a peaceful transition of power? I'd like to offer some thoughts based on this passage that I hope are helpful. When Peter challenges the leaders about who to listen to, he is alluding to the presence of two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. As Christians, it's important for us to remember that we are members in a sense of two kingdoms, We have an earthly citizenship by natural birth into the kingdom of this world, which includes citizenship in the country of our birth. But as Paul says in Philippians 3.20, because of Jesus saving us from this world, our real citizenship is in heaven. Our real citizenship is in heaven. So as Christians, we can almost say we have a dual citizenship. We have a citizenship in heaven and we have a citizenship here. But our citizenship in heaven is our primary citizenship. Paul also said, or Paul says in Colossians 1, he says that when we trusted Jesus as our Savior, God took us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So we are members of two kingdoms. Peter also clearly states that despite these leaders' authority in this world, his, Peter's ultimate loyalty is to God alone. There is no other name under heaven given among men, Peter says, so you be the judge of who we should listen to, you or God. Then Peter says, there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. There is salvation in no other name. One of the dangers we face as Christians in the United States, which has troubled me for some time, one of the dangers we face as Christians in the United States is to believe that our salvation Our well-being, even God's kingdom on earth, is dependent upon election results. It's dependent upon the right members of Congress or the right court appointments. Now hear me. I'm not saying these issues are unimportant. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about them. All political decisions will affect us. Some will make our lives easier. Some will make it more difficult for us, either as citizens of this country or as believers. But these issues are not of primary importance to those of us who are citizens of heaven. They are secondary. They are secondary. Because Jesus is our king. He is the king over all kings. He is the ruler over all rulers. His will will ultimately be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus never has to run for office. He is king eternally. Jesus' kingdom is a perfect kingdom that will never fail. Hear this. No matter how this election goes, it does not affect either our primary citizenship or the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. Anxiety builds as clock ticks. No matter how this election goes, it does not affect either our primary citizenship or the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. In the United States, we have been granted the right to vote. That's an American right for which we are very grateful. But we need to remember it's not a biblical right. But we do have a biblical instruction to be good stewards of our earthly citizenship, which includes our vote. And how we steward our vote is an important and very private matter and I know that this statement out of everything that I've said so far is the one that may really get me into trouble, but I'm going to say it. There is not one Christian way to vote. I cannot stand up here and tell you with chapter and verse this is the Christian way to vote. Some will vote for one party, some for another, Some of us may choose actively not to vote at all because we don't like any party's platform. We will all have different priorities that affect how we vote based on our understanding of which biblical issues are most important. But however you choose to vote, you are doing so as a citizen of heaven. However you choose to vote, you are doing so as a citizen of heaven. And because we are primarily citizens of heaven... Citizens of God's kingdom, we must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit that God has given us. We must not allow for differences of opinion, or we must allow for differences of opinion politically, but we must not allow those differences to be the basis for our fellowship. We must not allow political differences to divide us from fellowship with one another. And how we respond to the election results and to each other is of primary importance because that response reveals which kingdom we are living for. Where is our hope? Where is our confidence? As Christians, we are engaged in a conflict between two kingdoms. We are living in this world, this earthly kingdom that hates Jesus and his followers. But our chief calling is to live as citizens of another, higher, greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. And which kingdom I, am I living for? Well, that's reflected in how I spend my time, my money, what I pursue in life, how I engage in relationships. Am I working to please God or to please people? And what would Peter say? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. I'd like to close our time in a time of prayer as we. Uh, Prepare our hearts for sharing a time of the Lord's table together. Dear Lord, thank you for this powerful reminder today that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As we continue to face the COVID 19 pandemic, as we continue to face social unrest in the face of ongoing injustice, As we face a contentious and divisive election season, may we remember the name of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. What a powerful name it is. Death could not hold him. He silenced the boast of sin and grave. He has no rival, he has no equal. Now and forever, God reigns. His is the kingdom, his is the glory. There is nothing that can stand against the powerful name of Jesus. So we ask, Lord, that in the trials of this life, that we are children of this great kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. We live and walk in the name of and in the power of the King of kings and Lord of lords, in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.